We have a special treat and opportunity this morning. We mentioned it last week that Dylan and Tirza Lundberg were back. They went out from this church several years ago to serve in Southeast Asia and in Vietnam. And they're transitioning home. And so we thought this morning it'd be good to have them come up and share a brief report with us. So I invite Dylan and Tirza to come forward. And they're going to let us a little, know a little bit about what is coming, and then we'll have a time of prayer for them. Okay, thanks so much. You know, I think when we saw you this uh, last summer, we were home, and it wasn't our plan to be back here uh, in February. And um, we're excited. The reason we're back is that we're expecting. So uh, baby Lumberg is coming. <laughs> uh, tears is due in uh, mid-July. So that's quite exciting, and um, when we found out that news, whenever we found out, I forget when that was, uh, we decided it was best to come back uh, to the States uh, for this time of the birth, and also uh, a young baby, a uh, young child. Um, I think that's totally doable in Vietnam, but we uh, decided it was best for us to come back. So um, we will be transitioning back to the States here um, for the foreseeable future, um, sadly for uh, our time together, uh, we are going to be transitioning uh, to live in uh, Tears' hometown in North Dakota. So uh, sad, we'll be missing all of you guys, but we'll be back in the States. Um, so that's why we're coming back. Um, maybe you picked up one of those uh, prayer cards on your way in, on your way out. I just want to highlight a couple of those things. Um, one of those is we ask that you uh, be thinking of the teachers still teaching um, in Vietnam and uh, the school we worked at. Um, it was sad to be leaving. Um, mid-semester, right? We were just between uh, semesters. It's sad to be leaving uh, so soon the work that was started there. And um, we just do ask that you continue to think of those who are uh, laboring um, uh, at our school that we were working at. Um, also, this transition back to the U.S. Uh, is new for us, right? We've, uh, of course, grew up in the U.S. and we spend summers here, but that's a transition that um, we'll have to learn, especially um, I was just thinking my most common way I I get together with students is having coffee with them, and um, thought that's maybe kind of strange if I invite a high school student out to coffee with me. Uh, that'll take some transition to learn how to um, to best uh, be allied and uh, minister to people, um, students in the U.S. Um, lastly, I just want to thank all of you for uh, the support uh, that you have given us, um, not only um, financially, but um, praying for us and always uh, being so encouraging when we see you. Um, we just thank you so much for uh, who you are as the church family, the church body, and uh, we truly appreciate that and love that. Um, and we just thank you for the ways that you have done that. Um, you guys are a great support to us while we are away, and um, we know you continue to do that for many other uh, people serving uh, the Lord um, around the world. So just thank you for that, um, and um, yeah, thanks for the opportunity to uh, have us uh, share a little bit what's going on. We'll be around after the service if you want to uh, catch us also. Let's take a moment to pray for them. Father, in the great name of Jesus, we thank you that you've allowed us to have a partnership in the gospel with this wonderful young couple. Thank you, Father, for how you've prepared them and trained them and used them. And we pray for the fruit that they've left behind, that it would grow into fruition and lives changed for both time and for eternity. We pray that you might even allow for them to continue in contact with those that they left behind that are dear to them. But Father, we're excited for the future that you have before them, and we commit them into your care, and we thank you that we can count on you to go before them, to guide them, to go beside them, to encourage them, to watch over them, to keep track of where they are, and to help them to be behind them, to continually give them your voice, as this is the way, walk in it. So Lord, as their family expands, we pray that you would grow them, and continue to encourage them, help them very quickly to find a good church home. And Father, continue to burn that flame for missionary fervor in their hearts, that in the place where they go, they would encourage others to have your heart for the world. So, Father, thank you for this privilege we've had. And we thank you, Father, that because we're in the same family, this is just a see you later. We know that we will see them again, whether here or at the, around your wonderful throne. So, Father, we ask for travel mercies as they go and ask your hand of blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's let them know how much we appreciate them and the partnership we've had. Thank you, brother.
encourage you at this time, if you have not already, to make sure your cell phones are turned to silence so we don't have any interruptions during the sermon. And if you've not already had the chance, those attendance cards that are in the rows, go ahead and fill them out and pass them back and forth and maybe get to meet someone new this morning who is worshiping with you and with us, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. General Douglas MacArthur is perhaps best known for being the commander of the Allied forces in the Asia-Pacific during World War II. As one of the few who have ever achieved the rank of five-star general, he served in a number of roles in the Philippines, in Japan, and in Korea. But like all men, General MacArthur had to learn when he did and did not understand something. You see, a leader is one who is a continual learner. He does not remain static in his understanding. In his autobiography, he relates an important event early in his military training while he was at West Point. He was in a science class, and as he tells the story, the first section was studying this time-space relationship later formulated by Einstein as his theory of relativity. The text was complex, and being unable to comprehend it, he said, I committed the pages to memory, and when I was called upon to recite it, I solemnly reeled off almost word for word what the book said. Our instructor, Colonel Feiberger, looked at me somewhat quizzically and asked, do you understand this theory? It was a bad moment for me, MacArthur said, but I did not hesitate in replying, no, sir. You could have heard a pin drop. I braced myself and waited, and then the slow words of the professor, neither do I, Mr. MacArthur, section dismissed. We learn in this example from MacArthur's life that we can know certain words we can know certain ideas and yet not really understand what they mean. And that's a fitting description of the crowds in Jerusalem in the story that we're going to look at this morning. At this point in Matthew, Jesus is about to enter Jerusalem where the climax of his messianic life and ministry will be reached. However, as we will see in this passage, the fact of knowing some correct terms does not mean proper understanding of them. And so may the Lord help us to have a proper understanding of who Jesus is, of what he came to do, and who he is to be in our lives. As he shows us not only today, but over the next several weeks as we continue in this part of the gospel according to Matthew, how he fulfilled his roles as the prophet, the priest, and the king. I invite you to stand as we read our passage for this morning. We are now in Matthew chapter 21, and we will read the first 11 verses. And this word of God given to us by God the Holy Spirit under his inspiration and for our edification says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her and untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble, and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. May he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Please be seated. And let us pray. Now to you, Father, we turn as our great teacher, indeed as the Lord and author of this text. Help us, Lord, to understand. Help us to grow in our faith and who you are. Help us to see a bigger picture of your greatness and grandeur. Help us to know that we have met with you this morning as we study your word, as we commit ourselves to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. By this time, Jesus and the disciples have left Jericho and have made this long journey from Cher Jericho up to Jerusalem. We said it was about 15 miles or so, a little longer. 
And it wasn't so much the distance as it was the, the elevation, as they would have to go up over 3,500 feet from their starting point. And they saw that they're already that they've been gathered by large crowds who were on their way to Jerusalem for the Feast of the Passover, one of the three major feasts that required people to make the journey to go to Jerusalem every year. And so as we enter Matthew 21, we enter a new and important stage in the ministry of the Messiah. In fact, it's so important that Matthew will do, use the last eight chapters of his book to deal with the events of the next eight days in the life of Jesus, showing how important these things are to him who's trying to explain the gospel to his Jewish readers. Behold Jesus, the promised Messiah. And if you follow along in your sermon outline or on the church app, that brings us to our first major point this morning, which is the preparation. The preparation. They're on their way to Jerusalem. Jesus has already told us what will happen when he gets there. He will suffer. He'll be mocked. He'll be beaten. He'll be crucified. And he will raise on the third day. But you wouldn't necessarily know that that was going to happen by the events of what we see in our passage this morning. The week certainly doesn't start off that way. Many are on this trek. Many are already in the city. They're expecting the Messiah to come. And if it was this Jesus who was the Messiah, there was excitement about what would happen as he comes into the city in that historic week 2,000 years ago. And so we see that the scene is set. The scene is set. And our text begins. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage to the Mount of Olives, I'm going to stop there. Remember, all along, Jesus has been determined to get to Jerusalem. He knows that the fulfillment of his reason for coming to earth will happen there. So they passed by this little village named Bethphage, which is located to the east of Jerusalem. It's actually on the outer ridge of the Mount of Olives. Bethphage would actually be what would be considered the outer boundary of the Jerusalem area for the purposes of the feast. It has an interesting name. It means the house of unripe figs or figs that are not yet ready. I find that a wonderful symbol of what happens as Jesus is ready to go into Jerusalem because he has a people who are not yet ready to receive him as he truly is, as the true Messiah. But the city itself, Bethage also, or this village, also has important messianic imagery. It was used by the prophet Ezekiel as he describes first the departure of the glory of the Lord, and then as it comes back. And with the coming of Jesus, we have the ultimate glory of the Lord coming to the city. But unfortunately, the people would miss it. The village of Bethage was located near the village of Bethany, which is also on the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives is a place of great importance in biblical prophecy. Perhaps in your study of God's word, you've noticed that a lot of important things happen on a mountain. And certainly something important will happen here. A king will enter the city. And not just any king, as we will see. But for now, the scene is set. And we see that Jesus shows he is Lord of the details. Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. This was a planned event on the part of Jesus. The city would be full of people because Passover was near, and many would have already heard of miracles that Jesus performed. And if we lay one gospel next to another, we realize that it is probably on this trip to Jerusalem that Jesus went to Bethany and raised Lazarus from the dead. And if that's the case and the timing, then that means that Jesus has just performed a marvelous miracle that is going to draw the attention of many because Bethany was just a few miles away across from Bethphage and that event probably happened a few days before. Now the time has come for Jesus to reveal his true identity. We've seen many times in the Gospel of Matthew up to this point where Jesus has heard confessions of faith of who he is, and he says, be quiet for now. Be quiet for now. Don't tell others. He will no longer do that. In fact, we saw that with the healing of the two blind men, that he did not tell them to be quiet when they cried out that he was the son of of David. Now is the time for him to go into Jerusalem and boldly let it be proclaimed who he is so that he would give the true meaning of what these terms were that concerned him as he fulfilled God's plan. So we're told that he sends two of his disciples into the village with specific instruction. 
And I find it important that in none of the gospel accounts are we given their names. I love that because the emphasis is to be on Jesus and on his lordship and what he will do and what will happen to him, not on the identity of the servants that he chooses to use for this occasion. And so we get the wonderful lesson that sometimes the best way we serve the Lord is in anonymity. It's not important that our names be known, but it is important that his name be known and proclaimed. As Charles Spurgeon says, it is ours to do what Jesus bids, just as he bids us, and because he bids us, for his command is our authority. Indeed, it is the desire of our lives that we proclaim the greatness of the name of Jesus, whether our name ever comes into the picture or not. Well, we get to verse 2, and it says, You will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. So we're not told how, but somehow Jesus has arranged all the animals needed for this occasion. Now, if we compare the gospel accounts, Jesus did go into Jerusalem several times. Perhaps it was on one of those journeys that he had arranged this. Perhaps it's just a way of his showing, I'm in control of all things. And I think that's likely when Matthew said, the Lord needs them. Perhaps this was a prearranged password between Jesus and the owner of these animals. But I think it also shows that Jesus is Lord over everything, even a few obscure animals in a small city. He who was the agent of creation through whom all things were made even knows where two obscure animals are located at just the time that they are needed. He's in control of all things at all times, even when it seems random to us. And if we say that Jesus is Lord over animals and over men, he is also Lord over our lives. And aren't we glad that he is Lord of the details in all that happens to us? Well, if we see the preparation, we get to our next major point, which is the prophecy. Verse 4 tells us this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. It's a common formula we see in Matthew. Matthew explains an event and then shows how its fulfillment is, is directed to some prophecy because Jesus comes as a prophet because he knows what will happen, he exercises the authority of a prophet in preaching the word of God and expressing the judgment of God, but he's more than a prophet. He's a fulfiller of the prophets. And in this case, Matthew is quoting from two prophets. He's quoting from the prophet Isaiah and from the prophet Zechariah. And Matthew often does this. He combines two prophets into one, usually putting them in a category of one prophet over another. And this is another case where he lists two and just says the prophet and those that would have known the scriptures as his early readers did, the Jews, they would have known from where they came. And what did the prophets predict? In this case, the prophets predicted the humble and righteous king. The humble and righteous king. So in verse 5, we see, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So Matthew combines this prophecy, as I've said, from two places. The first line comes from Isaiah 62, verse 11. And the rest of it comes from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. But Matthew does something very interesting here. And that is as he quotes from Isaiah 62, and as he quotes from Zechariah 9, he leaves out the mention in those verses of salvation. So, for example, let's look at the full verse of Zechariah chapter 9, and then you can compare it with what you see in the gospel according to Matthew. Behold, your king is coming to you, and I've underlined the part that Matthew leaves out. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal, of a donkey. And now let's look at Isaiah 62:11. The full verse says, "Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your salvation comes." Now isn't that a curious thing? Why does Matthew leave out the notion of salvation at this point? After all, is not Jesus the Messiah? Is he not the savior? And the answer of course is yes. We have that right away from the beginning. He came to save his people from their sins. He's entering the holy city on this week to become the Passover sacrifice for those he came to save. So why does he leave out a reference to salvation in these two verses at this time? And I think there are at least two reasons. The first is that 
He's drawing attention to the fact of the manner in which Jesus is coming at this time. That Jesus is coming in humility. He's coming in righteousness. He's coming with the idea of bringing peace. He's coming with the idea of being humble. So 500 years before the fact, the Bible predicted the exact manner in which the the Messiah would enter the city of Jerusalem and the attitude that he would have as he did so. And in this case, Jesus is mirroring examples of other kings of Israel who entered the city on a donkey. We might think of David or Ahab or Saul or Josiah, and we won't look at their examples this morning, but they came in humility. How much more so than the one who came as the fulfillment of the prophets would come in on a donkey, coming in humility and not in pride or in hubris. But I think there's a second meaning, a reason for why he doesn't mention salvation at this point concerning both Isaiah 62 and Zechariah 9. And that is in those verses, in both cases, salvation points to something in the future. When the Messiah will come in judgment and with a sword and in righteousness will defeat his enemies and vindicate his righteousness. And so, for example, if we look at the next verse, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 10, it says, look at the war terms. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. If we look at the completion now of Isaiah 62, verse 11, that begins by saying, say to the daughter of Zion, it says, behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Both of those verses, when they talk about salvation, talk about the future return of the Messiah and glory and power whereby he will execute his righteous judgment against his enemies, defeating them all, will reward his people and bring righteousness to all the earth from sea to sea. And Matthew, as he is writing to his Jewish readers in the first century, brilliantly sees the difference between the first and the second coming of Christ. The first time he comes in humility and peace. The second time he will come in victory and in vengeance against his enemies. But this time, he's the humble and the righteous king. He is also the peace-bringing king. And we'll just read the verse again. Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So as he comes riding in on an animal, yes, it is a triumphal posture of sorts. Yes, it is coming as a king of sorts. But by riding in on a donkey, he shows he's coming in in peace. Because a conqueror would come in on a war horse. Jesus comes in on a donkey. He was a king. He is bringing victory. But it's a strange kind of victory. It's a victory that will only come about through humiliation and suffering. On that day, Jesus would enter one city. But the impact of what he would do in that one city in the days to come would ultimately be global and universal and eternal. On that day, he came as a don on a donkey as the Prince of Peace that he might bring peace between God and men, men who are far away from God because of their sin and rebellion, that he might be the intermediaries, the one that would bring God and men back together in a relationship of harmony and peace for all who repent and believe. Now, the people of Jerusalem in the first century, they were not happy that they were laboring under Roman occupation. They were looking for a Messiah who would be a liberator, a military conqueror. And Jesus comes riding in on a donkey on a man, as a man of peace, as a humble leader. The religious leaders knew nothing of such a leader. They wanted a strong military leader, a real man of the world. But Jesus is Lord of the details. He knows what he's doing. He was fulfilling prophecy as the promised king of Israel, and he knew what kind of king he was. He would be a lowly servant and yet a king who has all authority. He would suffer and die at the hands of men and yet have a kingdom that will reign forever. He is the one who comes first in peace and then later in judgment. 
He comes in a, in a donkey now offering forgiveness to all, but he will return one day on a white horse bringing justice to the nations. So he does not come the first time on a war horse, but he comes on an animal who is called a beast of burden. Matthew draws attention to the fact that there were two animals, so there was a mother that was with the colt that were brought along because according to the accounts in Mark and in Luke, this colt had never been ridden upon. And can you imagine being a, a colt, never ridden upon, and suddenly you're in the midst of these throngs of people shouting and screaming and dancing and chanting, and perhaps the presence of the mother of this colt would bring calmness to this donkey that had never been ridden on. But it's interesting that we have no record that this colt ever bucked, ever revolted, ever rejected the rider that was upon him. Perhaps he had an understanding of who was riding upon him, in fact, the one who had created him. But you know, what is the role of a donkey? It's to bear the burdens of others. This young donkey had never borne the burden of anyone's body weight. And now he is carrying the most important person in history, the one who would be the ultimate bearer of the burdens of men, the one who would carry the burdens of our sin, our wickedness to the cross so that there would be forgiveness and release and hope and eternal life to all who would believe. As we saw earlier in Matthew, he took our illnesses and bore our diseases. He took our sin and our wickedness. He took our rebellion and he bore that burden as he goes into the city where he will bring victory. Well, after the prophecy then, we have the proclamation. The proclamation. In verse 6, we're told that the disciples went and did as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks and he sat on them. Cloaks, in this case, symbolize the presence of royalty. And by laying down their cloaks, the people symbolize their submission to Jesus as king. A king would not come riding on an uncovered animal. And so they, they put covers on him, and he would ride on them. Not on the two animals, on the cloaks that were placed on the colt. And the proclamation of the people is, make way for the king. Most of the crowd spreads their, spread their cloaks on the road, we see in verse 8, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road, and the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting. Can you imagine the celebratory scene going on? As the mass is coming for the feast, they're all excited about what could happen this week. They're coming to commemorate the Passover, where God brought a great deliverance to the people. You can just almost hear them singing and chanting and shouting and marching in the background. We're told that this was a great crowd. In fact, if we were to literally translate the word that is used here, we'd have to say something like it was the mostest crowd. It was the most large crowd. And they spread their cloaks out on the road as a makeshift red carpet service for the king. Of course, Jesus is a king. He's more than a king. He is the king of kings. And he's going to show us what kind of king he would be as he came that first time and as we await his arrival the second time. Others cut down branches from the palm trees and lay them on the ground. And what great symbolism is here for the palm branch was a symbol of national celebration in Israel. It was often used in the theme of liberation. So it's clear than what the crowd of the first century was expecting. They were expecting victory. They were expecting celebration. They were expecting liberation. And they think this is the king that's going to bring it about to set the people free. And the rest of the book will tell us how that went. But as the celebration is underway, we're reminded that there are two crowds, which eventually become one. In the past several weeks, we've made a point of showing that Jesus left in Galilee in the north, crossed over into the area of Perea on the eastern side of the Jordan River, came all the way down south by the Dead Sea, crossed back over into Galilee so he would go from Galilee to Judea without passing through Samaria. And along the way, they would have encountered a number of folks who were on the same trek 
for the same reason to go to the festival. That would be the crowd that is coming behind him. But since Jerusalem was where everybody had to go, there would also be people already there in the city awaiting the celebration of the festival. And with all the singing and, and dancing and joyful bantering that's going around, there would be a great interest that would be happening. And so they would come out of the city and say, what's going on? And so the crowds behind him and the crowds before become almost as one crowd. So messianic fever was in the air. Passover was the time of celebration where God passed over his people in judgment on the Egyptians, which then liberated his people from the slavery that they had been in for over 400 years. The people longed for a similar liberation from the Romans. They despised the high taxation. They despised the authoritarian rule. They despised that these Gentiles were in control of their land. They longed for the Messiah to come and judge the Romans, to lead them to victory. And in their mind, this son of David would bring victory in a military and political sense. And so for many of them, well-intentioned as they may have been, this was a misguided patriotic celebration of the eventual victory of the nation instead of the victory of the son of David over all the forces of evil. And so they would soon learn that Jesus did bring victory and did bring liberation from oppression, but it was a far greater victory over a far more oppressive and dangerous and deadly enemy, that of sin and death and the devil. Oh, we might wish that they had eyes to see on that day, but for now there's jubilance as they say, make way for the king, and as they shout, hail to the king. And then we get to verse 9, the verse that we love sharing, verse that we love singing about, typically on Palm Sunday. But, of course, it's a verse that we can shout and celebrate at any time. Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. The word Hosanna is used twice here. It can be translated literally as save us now. It was originally set out to be a, a prayer but over time, it became more of a shout of victory, a patriotic slogan, more so than just an actual prayer. They were seeking their own good. They were seeking the, the development and prosperity of the nation, not necessarily the glory of God. So as I said, Hosanna, save us now. It might be things that we see in our world today of God save the king or God bless America. The verb tense indicates that they were cheering and shouting for some time. You can almost palpably feel their anticipation and excitement as they're talking among themselves, as they're moving the city, as the king is there, as he's riding on a donkey, and they're talking among themselves. Now is the time of our liberation. Now is the time of our victory. Can't you almost imagine the fall of Rome? Hosanna to the son of David. I hope you made the connection this morning as we were reading the, the opening passage that Pastor Brian led, that there's a connection because the people were quoting Psalm 118, verse 25. Matthew doesn't want his original readers to miss the connection as they quote that verse. Recall in the passage that we saw a couple weeks ago, the two blind men, what did they shout? Hosanna to the son of David. O son of David, save us. O son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus heals their blindness. They follow him. Here we see a crowd shouting the same thing. Jesus is the son of David. And yet in their case, we see that they're still blind physically and, no, they're blind spiritually to the true nature of Jesus. Jesus is the one who can open the eyes of the physically blind, who can open the eyes of the spiritually blind because he's the one who can set us free from sin. May our eyes be opened as we read the text to see the beauty and reality of Jesus as the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. To come in the name of another means to represent that person in name and in position and responsibility. And so here we find the crowd proclaiming better than they actually knew and understand at the time. And what we actually see in this passage is, at least in part, but I would say in full, a fulfillment of what we see going on in that famous passage in Psalm 118, verses 23 to 26. 
where the psalmist says, we have seen it with our eyes. It's a beautiful thing. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Psalm 118. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus is worthy of the highest of praise, even to the throne room of God. There's one translation that even renders this verse, let even the angels in the presence of God shout his praise. Who can the angels worship and praise but God himself? Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna to the son of David. Jesus has already said the Lord has need of him, of them, showing that he knows he is Lord. Now the crowds, shouting better than they know, acknowledge that to Jesus is to be given the highest of the highest of the highest of praises. You honor Jesus and the fullness of his divinity. Does Jesus receive the highest praise in your worship, in your service, in your life, in the words of your mouth, in the actions of your hands, in the attitudes of your heart? He's the fulfillment of the prophets. Yes, he's a king, but he's so much more. He's the king of kings, worthy of praise, equal even to the praise of the Father himself. Now, we'll see as we move through this passage that the crowds did not fully understand what they meant, but they at least spoke well. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This one who comes with divine authority, with divine name, with a divine power, and not only is he the one who comes in the name of the Lord, we who know Christ know that he is the Lord. And because of what he did when he came into Jerusalem, because of what he accomplished with three years, 33 years of a perfectly righteous life, we who know Christ can say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But we also know with Matthew that that was appropriate to say on that day as Jesus was going into the city, as he was riding in to be victorious over sin and death. But our hope is that he's coming back. And as he comes back, it'll be all, even more spectacular for us to shout and sing, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. When he establishes righteousness across the world, when he gets rid of all wickedness, when he puts down his enemies, when he builds the new heavens and the new earth. Do we not long for that day when we see him coming on the clouds and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. After the proclamation, we have the prophets. Verse 10. And when he entered Jerusalem. And now begins this last week of his ministry before the cross and resurrection. Take up the rest of our time in the Gospel of Matthew as he uses eight chapters to talk about the most important week in the history of the world. And as he enters the city, it is stirred up. The city stirred up. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? Notice that the celebration started outside the city. The celebration is going on as they're approaching the city and they're shouting and they're singing. And now they come into the city, probably after a celebration that had lasted for quite some time. And we're told the whole city is stirred up. And this is not the first time, nor would it be the last time, that Jerusalem is stirred by what happens to Jesus. At the time of his birth, or months after his birth, when the Magi come into Jerusalem, they say, we have come to see the one born King of the Jews. And we saw that Jerusalem was in an uproar. What does this mean? And now he comes in on the day of the triumphal entry and the city is shaken and abuzz with excitement. In just a few days as he is hung on a cross and as he dies, the city will be shaken again. As creation itself cannot understand all that's happening as the Son of Man is hanging on a cross between heaven and earth, bearing the sins of his people. And it will be shaken again when he returns in glory and great power. This physical imagery points to deeper spiritual truth that something earth-shaking is happening in the heavenlies itself as the plan of God is fulfilled through the son of David. And so the city is stirred. The people are wondering, who is this? What is this all about? What is happening? What's the cause of the celebration? And the people say, the prophets, the Nazarenes. 
verse 11. And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. This is the prophet. We know that Jesus is a prophet, but he's more than a prophet. He's the one to whom all the other prophets point. And indeed, there was a long expectation on behalf of the people that the prophet would come. The one that they've waited for since the time of Moses, when Moses promised the people that there would come one. For in Deuteronomy 18 and verse 15, it says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And we were left the signs of what to look for for this prophet who would come. For Moses spoke face to face with God. Moses performed miracles. But Jesus came and spoke continuously with God praying in his presence and perform miracles that far surpassed Moses, showing that he is the one who came to fulfill the law and the prophets. We've already seen some of that as we've worked through Matthew. He said on the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, Matthew 5, verses 17 and 18. We go over to the Gospel of John, and Jesus says, Moses spoke about me, John 5, 46. In the Gospel of Matthew, he's already told us that he is greater than Jonah, greater than Solomon, greater than all the prophets. He's the fulfillment of the prophets. And the early church recognized this. They knew who this Jesus was. It took them some time to get to it. Some of them had to go through suffering. The Holy Spirit had to come and strengthen them and remind them of all that Jesus had said. But in Acts chapter 3, we find Peter testifying to who Jesus is. He's threatened with prison. He's threatened with punishment. He's threatened with ridicule and, and embarrassment. And what does he say in Acts chapter 3, verses 22 and 20 to 24, Jesus, uh, Peter's quoting, Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. The early church understood that Jesus was the prophet who was to come. And as Stephen, the first Christian martyr, was about ready to lose his life under a hail of stones, quotes from this very passage in Deuteronomy that this is the prophet who was to come. And so it's appropriate for the crowd to say he's a prophet, even if they didn't fully understand it at that day, they spoke better than they knew. This is the prophet, Jesus, from Nazareth and Galilee. Matthew has already made reference to the fact that Jesus would be a Nazarene. That's going to become an important part as we move through the last eight chapters. So perhaps let's take some time just to summarize how do we arrive at that term that Jesus is a Nazarene. Matthew helps us develop the thesis. We have to go back a, a few months because we looked at it back in Matthew chapter 2 and we're in Matthew chapter 21. But it's worth it for us to just look a little bit of how we got there so we understand what is going on. Matthew will combine several lines of prophecy to make the declaration that Jesus was a Nazarene. And there were two main lines of prophecy in the Old Testament. One of a conquering king who would come and rule over the people, defeat the enemy, set up the eternal kingdom of God. And the other line was of a suffering servant who would be wrongly treated, deeply misunderstood, and die as a sacrificial offering for his people. He would be the one who would be despised and rejected. And so how does this idea of a Nazarene come together? Well, the word Nazarene comes from the, the Hebrew word Nesser, which means root or a sprout or a shoot of a plant. And we see many places in the Old Testament where there was a promise of a, a sprout or a root would come from, Jeff, from Jesse or from David. this root that would grow up to rule over the people. Did Jesus understand this about himself? Well, listen to his testimony in Revelation 22. Jesus says, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. So he knows that he's promised to be the root. Well, the word Nazarene comes from Nesser, which means root. Jesus is the root. But secondly, Nazareth itself was a town of little renown in the first century. In the writings of the day, it was a slur to call someone a Nazarene. It was not a town that was highly spoken of. 
those from Nazareth, those were the little people. They were inferior to the high and mighty who came from Judah. There was competition that went on between Judah and Galilee. And even one who became an early follower of Jesus in John chapter 1 says, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And yet Jesus came as one who would come humbly, without drawing attention to himself, without any special beauty, as we're reminded in, in Isaiah 53. Just listen to a couple of verses as I read it. But he, the Messiah, grew up before the Lord like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground, he had no former majesty so that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And so by the first century, Nazarene had become a code word for the despised and rejected. And so Matthew, as he is writing to the, he to the Hebrew people, to the Jewish people, he takes the term Nazarene and applies it to Jesus as the prophetic fulfillment of this messianic ministry. Jesus, who would be the ultimate, despised and rejected. Rejected by the government. Rejected by his own people. Rejected by the religious leaders. He would be the one who will come as a humble ruler the first time. And the second time will come as a ruling king. He would fulfill both lines. But for now... He came from the wrong town for the wrong time for the wrong purpose and he was rejected just as the prophets predicted he would be. As the despised and rejected one he fulfilled both lines of prophecy. And think of how wonderful it is my friends that Jesus was the Nazarene the rejected one the despised one and because he was rejected because he was despised before a holy God we will not be. We will be embraced and accepted and brought into God's holy presence because of what Christ did on behalf of his people. This little Nazarene of little renown from a podunk town would bring in a kingdom that will impact the entire world and indeed change all of history and even indeed all of creation. He would come to save his people from their sins. But first he was despised and hated and rejected. And so we, we have a triumphal entry. But it's a strange one. It foreshadows his victory. But not victory over governmental rulers. Victory over sin and death. For he said he's come to Jerusalem to die. He comes in victory and enters in victory. And yet how different is his entrance into the city from his exit from the city when he will be hauled outside the city and hung on a cross overlooking the city of Jerusalem. He was celebrated as a king on that day, but he was a king that was truly misunderstood. And so over the next few weeks as we move our way through Matthew 21 and following, we're going to see how Jesus fulfilled his role as the true prophet, the true king, the true priest of Israel. He enters as a king, but as a spiritual king now who rules in the hearts of his people and rules through his church. So one day he will rule over all. He wins over his enemies now by turning them into his friends through reconciliation. But he will rule over his enemies later as he destroys them for their lack of of belief and for the, re the rebellion against him. He will establish our righteous standing before God now because of what he has done, but will usher in complete righteousness at his return. He will judge the city as a prophet now, judging the temple, and we'll see that as we come, judging the city, and we'll see that, judging the priesthood, and then ultimately in a few decades when he judges the city in destruction. But even now, he's a judge who weeps over the city. He dies for his people as their sin offering. And he's both the priest and the offering. Yet even now, he sits on our behalf at the right hand of God, praying on our behalf that we would persevere in our faith, that we would walk in righteousness and holiness, that we would desire the things of God. 
So next week as we continue on, we're going to see his role in cleansing the temple. But until then, what are some lessons we can draw from today's sermon? Well, because Jesus is in control of all things, we gladly submit to him as our Lord and King. Symbolically, we take the cloaks of our lives and we lay it before him that he would be king and we submit to him and follow him as he says, follow me. And he leads us in the path of righteousness. Secondly, as people who believe in what God has said all throughout his book, as Jesus fulfilled the prophecies concerning his first advent, we fully expect him to do so in his second advent. And even so, we then pray, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. Thirdly, because Jesus is truly the king, we bow before him with our lives and worship him as the one who can save us now. Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. And because Jesus is worthy of our highest praise, we place him first in our desires and our worship and in our affections. May it be this week as we ponder this passage anew and afresh that our hearts from a place of submission to his royalty and kingship, would cry out, save us now, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for a reminder that it'll all come to pass just as you predicted. We're thankful for the hope that we have that because Jesus is our victor and our king, not only does he have the right to rule over our lives, but it is good that he rules over our lives for he is ultimate righteousness and goodness. And so we submit our hearts and minds and wills and souls and attitudes and energies to him. We thank you, Father, that Jesus knew what was coming and still went because he said I have come to give my life as a ransom for many and father we who are gathered this morning as we find ourselves among the many may that cry of jubilation shout out from our hearts Hosanna Hosanna in the highest and may we proclaim that truth well this week as we go out and under the power of your spirit live for you and tell others about you. Oh, Father, to that end we pray for your great and eternal glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.